You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For November 29th, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. In this seventh episode of our mini-series on climate change, we turn to the concept of carbon budgets and try to put those limits in the context of our previous discussions on how climate modeling is done, including what sorts of pathways might allow us to stay within those budgets. The generally accepted policy target for global warming is, of course, 2 degrees C above pre-industrial levels, although 1.5 degrees C would be far better. And as we have discussed in our previous episodes on climate science, the climate modeling community has developed scenarios to show pathways to those warming limits, along with numerous other scenarios that exceed those limits. But just because two degrees of warming might be feasible in a given model doesn't mean that the pathway is feasible in practice. Conversely, just because a given pathway gets you to a two-degree target in a given model, it doesn't mean that if we can't follow that path, that two degrees of warming are inevitable. As we have begun to explore, there are many possible pathways we might take and many possible outcomes, but not all of them are realistic. For example, we may be condemned to two degrees of warming in the absence of effective climate policy if our modeled assumptions about population and economic growth are accurate. But if they fall short of those growth rates, we may find that there is far less warming than anticipated. Or achieving a given warming limit might be easier than we think, particularly if we have a successful energy transition. Or we might not need new technologies that we currently assume will be necessary to hit those limits, like carbon capture and sequestration. Or it may turn out to be impossible to scale technologies like bio-CCS to the extent assumed in the models. Or warming could be greater than our current models suggest, if we have failed to accurately model certain drivers of warming, like emissions from melting permafrost. The fact is that there is a lot of uncertainty in modeling warming and the effects of our actions, and there's no way around that. So when policymakers talk about our carbon budgets, how much more carbon emissions we can put into the atmosphere to stay within our two-degree limit, that estimate is actually based on a model with a lot of inherent uncertainty within it. And as we update our models to adjust them to recent observations of warming and carbon concentrations, we may actually find that the carbon budget is larger than we used to think it was. Conversely, we may also find that many of our expected mitigation measures aren't actually feasible. Given all this uncertainty, what might we realistically expect, and which policy paths should we advocate? Our guest today is a veteran researcher on climate change whose current research focuses on the causes of recent changes in carbon dioxide emission trends at the global and country level, and how these changes link to future emissions pathways consistent with global climate objectives, and he's going to help us sort it out. 
Dr. Glenn Peters has been a senior researcher at the Cicero Center for International Climate Research in Oslo, Norway for nearly 10 years. He is particularly interested in how emission scenarios are created, interpreted, and used, and how this relates to ongoing policy discussions. Our conversation went for nearly two hours and hopefully addresses most of the questions about climate modeling and carbon budgets that we haven't yet covered in the previous six episodes on climate science. Then, in the news segment, we'll draw some conclusions from AEP's latest capacity plan, discuss the bombshell revelations of the author of DOE's recent reliability study, consider the possibility that a Chinese city may be the first in the world to sport an all-electric fleet of city buses, and check out a California program that offers incentives for integrative design. But first, our conversation with Glenn Peters. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Glenn, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you. It's great to finally be on the show. Yeah, I agree. You've been a subscriber for a while and certainly participating in a lot of our interesting energy transition related discussions on the Twitter. So yeah, nice to actually talk with you in person for a change. Why don't we start with your background? For nearly a decade now, you've worked at an organization called the Center for International Climate Research, or CICERO, which is based in Oslo, Norway. Briefly, what is the history of that organization and what do you do there? So Cicero, like many climate institutes of this sort of type, started about 25 years ago. And the relevance of 25 years ago was it was very close to 1990 with the IPCC reports, first assessment report coming out at that time. In the Norwegian context, there was also the Brundtland Commission on Sustainable Development. And Gru Brundtland was the former prime minister of Norway. So a bit of a cultural context there. So the government started Cicero as an independent research institute in 1990. So we had our 25-year celebration two years ago in 2015. And a part of the drive when setting up Cicero was that it was interdisciplinary institute and it had a strong focus on social sciences. So we have a good group of people here working on the sort of hardcore physical sciences, if you like, doing climate modelling. We've got a group of economists doing more of the sort of economic modelling, a very strong group on policy, looking at international negotiations and that type of thing. And that was one of the calls at the start and a wider range of social scientists looking at everything from, let's say, behavioural economics to impact research and what's going on in small towns and villages and so on and so forth. We also have a strong group on communication and that's also been a strong part of our mandate over the years as to communicate the research that we do. So it's a quite broad institute covering many aspects. And as a researcher sitting inside Cicero, one of the strengths of that is you get a very broad range of interests and understanding of different parts of the climate discussion or climate research. So that's quite valuable when you taking part in broader discussions on climate. Gotcha. So what's your specific remit there? My core area at Cicero is working on emission statistics, emission trends, and what's causing emissions to change, and looking forward into the future, where are emissions going, future scenarios, what's the energy transformation look like, that type of thing. So mainly focused on emissions and looking a little bit in the past and also 
quite interested in the future. Interesting. Okay. So you've been a subscriber to this podcast actually for several months now, and I know that you've listened to our conversation with Bas van Ralven in episode 51 about the IPCC's modeling. So before we dive into the big question of carbon budgets, I wonder if you have any reactions or comments that you'd like to offer on our previous episodes on climate science or on the way that scenarios like the representative concentration pathways or RCPs are used throughout the climate science and policy communities. So I really enjoyed the discussion with Baz, so episode 51, and also a couple of episodes before that, Justin Ritchie, I think maybe it was 49 or, or something like that. Yeah, that's right. That's also a very useful podcast. So for those that haven't oh, listened... Oh, good. I'm glad you thought so. <laughs> for those that haven't listened, I highly recommend to listen to those. And what you were sort of discussing in those, the Shared Socioeconomic Pathways or the SSPs, right. for those that know the acronym, now they're pretty much going to be the foundation of climate research in the next 5, 10, you know, probably even 15 years. And so it's very important that people interested in climate and energy really understand these SSPs and what they mean and what their quirks are. Yeah. And I think with the discussion with Baz, you went over a, a lot of the details. Yes, we did. <laughs> yeah. The, a few things that I just sort of touch on. And one thing that you sort of danced around a little bit, but didn't get into deep, which is, I think, quite important. So I was going to summarize, and I guess this came up through the discussion as well, the, the SSP or the Shared Socioeconomic Pathway Framework is a in a sense, a great academic framework, to put it that way. Mm. It's got many nice or smart features, but I'm pretty sceptical on how that may work in reality, in practice. Okay. And you had quite a few critiques and comments, which I think were quite reasonable. Okay. So the sort of reference case, so the SSPs have this no climate policy reference case, right? which is, well, it doesn't work anymore, <laughs> basically. But another important part, which you was sort of came up a little bit in that discussion, but didn't really sort of nail it and go in deep, is the sort of experimental design or the structural design of some of these scenarios. So now listen to your podcasts and the way you think about the energy transition, it's much more of the thought that the transition sort of happens in a sense by itself. So relative costs of energy are changing, attitudes of consumers and business and so on change and you know things start to drift in a good direction. Yeah. You could sort of amplify that with policy and so on. No, you're right. I do tend to sort of see it through a market lens more than anything, more than a policy lens. Right. Yeah. And that is very different to the way the scenarios work. Right. And this will probably be important for something that we'll probably discuss later, but the scenarios they're given a target, a constraint, and they're forced to go below that constraint. And, you know, there's other things with these models, these integrated assessment models that are used. They have a long integration time. They look out to 2100. They optimize costs out to 2100. The model is forced to reach its target below two degrees. And then when you have those conditions, the model follows a path very different to the path that you may follow if you're looking at the sort of way that you look at scenarios where there's this sort of gradual speeding up transition. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that many people really appreciate this difference that the models are forced to go to two degrees, let's say. They don't go to 2.1. They don't go to 1.9. They, in a sense, have perfect knowledge of where they're going, even if they're somewhat myopic or short-sighted. Right. They still know where they have to go. Right. And when you know that, 
you can start deploying technologies today, which we may think are ridiculous because the model thinks about the world quite differently to what we would think about the world. Mm -hmm. And that's quite an important distinction, I think. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because, well, first of all, I think you're right that we didn't necessarily drill down into that concept as much as we could have previously. But also, I guess I would emphasize that I do think the world mainly operates according to market rules and that I am skeptical of the influence of policy, which is not to say that I don't think we should form policy or that we should try to form policy or that we should try to actually build things according to policy recommendation, because I certainly support all those things. But I just think that in general, the world operates according to market rules. And I guess the distinction that you're making here does get to sort of the root of my frustration here, you know, which is, well, how do we map these conceptual frameworks to how the world actually works. Yeah, and this is a challenge with scenarios and coming back to the shared socioeconomic pathways is this, maybe you could call it the communications gap. We have the emissions gap, a report that was released not long ago. Yeah. But there's also a communications gap in a sense where how are these scenarios communicated? So I think there's a sort of a misunderstanding, let's say, in the broader community on what these scenarios actually do mm. and the way that they should be used. And so they get misinterpreted and therefore misused, which is a bit of a problem. Yeah. So in 2015, you did a lecture on what it would take to limit warming to two degrees C above pre-industrial levels as compared with the three to five degrees warming that RCP 8.5 suggests will happen by 2100. I've linked to that presentation in the show notes because it's a nice package. In just 11 and a half minutes, you cover the full range of scenarios, about 1200 of them from the IPCC's fifth assessment report. And you explain how if we can't make bio CCS work, and, and we'll discuss that later, then by 2050, we'll have to stop CO2 emissions entirely. That is, we'll have to stop burning fossil fuels entirely by 2050. And that the energy mix at that point would consist of bioenergy, nuclear, solar, and wind. But as we discussed previously on this show, how you compose a portfolio for the future energy mix really very much depends on what your assumptions are, sort of about everything, about how scalable each technology is, about what the price of various options will be some decades from now, about what other technologies may come into play, about efficiency gains and overall demand and all sorts of things. So when you say that this is a 2050 energy mix and that it would consist of bioenergy, nuclear, solar and wind, what are the assumptions that lead to that conclusion? Yeah, so it's good that you mentioned that presentation. It was at the 25th anniversary of CISRO, actually, that I gave that presentation. Oh, okay. I had the crown prince and the crown princess sitting in front of me, below my feet, actually, which I thought was quite interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but a little bit of reversal of roles there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was high up on a stage, so it was quite funny looking down at your feet to see them below you. But right. <laughs> yeah, sort of coming back to your question, I think there's a... An easy answer and a complex answer. I think the easy answer is quite instructive or intuitive in a sense. So, you know, these models are sort of modeling these two degree pathways, they're energy system optimization models. They've given a quite variety of constraints. For example, keep below two degrees. You can put in an additional constraint and say, let's get to two degrees without using carbon capture and storage. And then the model finds the energy system with the lowest cost. So if that so happens to be a lot of bio or a lot of nuclear or wind and solar or whatever, that's just the pathway that has the least cost according to the model assumptions. 
you will get some variations by the model and the model setup and there will be some different characteristics with each model but I think it's important to drive home that these models in a sense are very clean optimization models everything in the model works perfectly and you get the least cost solution in that idealized situation okay so that is the answer to my question this was a least cost optimization that you had identified here yes okay but then you know you can look at the results and you know as people do when they look at some of the scenarios assessed by the ipcc they look at the amount of carbon capture and storage or some aspect that they find unusual and then i don't think that we spend enough time trying to understand the structural questions with those models how is the model set up is there something about the way the model is structured that causes the solution that you get and it comes back a little bit to what we were saying before with the chris nelder way of looking at the energy transition and the let's say the ipcc way of looking at the energy transition where the the transition is forced upon the system mm -hmm. and just looking at a few of the things that are put into the models and why they get these responses so quickly they have these idealized carbon prices you know quite strong let's say hundred dollars a ton and then they'll grow at the discount rate more or less five percent per year they cover all sectors all regions there's no exceptions whatsoever and so as soon as you put that into a model the model responds immediately it's well behaved good investors you know the sort of neoclassical behavior every agent in the model behaves perfectly and quickly right they look at the long-term interests and so on you don't have cost overruns you know nuclear comes in on cost so i think not sure what the episode was but when you were speaking to jonathan kumi right talking about nuclear and cost overruns that doesn't happen in the model uh -huh. you don't have donald trump in the model everything works <laughs> okay. perfectly and so it's a real utopia and so when you get you know high levels of nuclear or high levels of carbon capture and storage or whatever it's well, this is the absolute perfect situation for the model. Gotcha. Okay. And so that's how we wind up with this low-cost optimization of renewables. And I'm glad that you mentioned the fact that there's actually a very strong carbon price signal in this model as well. Yeah. So these models, it's a little bit scary when you take across a spectrum of different sorts of models. You know, they get up to carbon prices in the thousands of dollars a ton. And, you know, some of these things can happen quite quickly which you're not going to really see in the real world. So this is coming back to this bridging what the model says and communicating how it relates to the real world, which is a very important thing to do, I think. That sort of question of feasibility is quite important. Yeah, exactly. And so I appreciated the fact that in that lecture, you note that two degrees is feasible, but only in the model. <laughs> because in reality, we've actually been unable to achieve the requisite level of international agreement through climate negotiations. And we haven't yet figured out how to do bio CCS at scale. And we do have a great deal of opposition to overcome from the fossil fuel industry, which as we can see from the current US administration has no intention of going gentle into that good night. And we don't have a carbon price of any significance. But just because a given solution set gets you to a two degree target, that doesn't actually mean that the lack of that same solution set means that two degrees of warming are inevitable either, right? So this is an important point that I want to talk about because it's also possible, if not actually probable, that the supply and demand assumptions in the baseline energy system are predicated on an unrealistic forecast for economic and population growth, is it not? I mean, this is kind of getting into those SSPs. Yeah. So this is something that's improved a lot with the SSP. So going back to the previous 
set of scenarios which I was looking at in that lecture, there was a lot more inconsistency with population and GDP and so on. With the Shared Socioeconomic Pathways, the SSPs, they've taken this more systematic approach where they have different pathways of population, GDP, and so on and so forth in these different idolized worlds that you can come up with. So it makes it a lot easier to compare across scenarios, which is a strength. But when you look at the results, the results are pretty much the same as what the other scenarios were saying before. And I think this comes back to these, I'm not sure, let's say, that the population or GDP is necessarily such an important variable in many of these models, or necessarily the relative cost of specific technologies, because I think there's other structural issues which are playing an important role, such as this optimization period, discounting costs over time, which of course we'll do, but you know, what role does the discount rate play mm. in shifting how much of this technology is used relative to that much technology? So if you have a high discount rate, that will shift mitigation into the future. Right. And it may mean that you use more BEX, bioenergy with CCS, a lower discount rate may shift mitigation closer to us, which may mean that we use more things that we have ready today, such as solar, wind, and so on. Yeah, that's a great point. Right. So I think some of these structural questions of the models are something that hasn't been looked at in sufficient detail. And also the fact that these models just get hit so hard with the carbon price straight away, the model just responds. It does the job that it has to do. Then you have to try and bridge the sort of what does that mean in the real world? Can we do that in the real world? If the answer is no, then you start to have to think about the scenarios differently. And there's not so many scenarios that are done that look at these more realistic sort of situations, which is essentially a critique that you're coming up with through the discussion with Baz. Right. No, there's none of these scenarios that I really believe. And in a sense, that's because they were set up in a way that it's not going to generate anything that you would believe. <laughs> right. Exactly. There's a structural <laughs> issue here. And so, first of all, I'm glad to hear that you don't think I'm utterly insane for thinking this way. And, you know, that maybe our discussion with Boz was in fact leading us to a point where we could have maybe more of a theoretical discussion about other ways to construct these scenarios. But just to sort of invert or restate my question, if the supply and demand assumptions in the baseline energy system that is sort of embedded into these models, if those things are too high, if we're assuming that there's going to be a higher population, more supply, more demand than might actually materialize in the future, then we might not actually get the two degrees of warming that the model predicts. And therefore, if you have a solution set that gets you to two degrees warming or below it under that model, you could actually have a different solution set where the model doesn't predict such a high level of warming and we might actually get to where we want to go. I don't think I'm being very articulate here, but do you follow my reasoning? So basically you're saying you could get, let's say, similar outcomes with very different initial conditions, if you like, or sure. base. Or we could get to less than base. two degrees warming under a different sort of energy mix or maybe we could also say that we might have less than two degrees warming on what actually turns out to be a business as usual scenario if 
business as usual doesn't include the growth in supply and demand and population that the model assumes. Right. So I think that's feasible and an important thing to discuss. So, you know, there's different ways that you could think about it. I'm just thinking how you can describe this over a podcast without scribbling on a bit of paper. But if you think there's, you know, a space of possible scenarios, possible future worlds, the scenarios assessed by the IPCC only analyze a subset of that space. Right. One thing that they've been heavily critiqued for is just about all the scenarios that keep below two degrees have pretty large scale carbon capture and storage. Right. So you could say they haven't really explored in detail how we could get to two degrees with limited carbon capture and storage. There's a few scenarios, but I wouldn't say they've done it systematically. Another area which you're sort of touching on is the models are, I think many people would say, not so strong on the energy efficiency side. Mm-hmm. So they're not very detailed on energy demand in a sense. And there could be many pathways that exist that have much lower energy consumption than indicated by the scenarios. And if you have much lower energy consumption, then your options to get below two degrees are much broader. Something quite interesting and surprising that I did the other day, I wrote a blog post looking at the Statoil energy perspective. So Statoil is Norway's oil company. Right. And they do an energy perspective, they call it, every year where they have three scenarios, a little bit like the IEA, International Energy Agency, with their three scenarios. And I was comparing their scenarios with those assessed by the IPCC. And one thing that sort of strikes you when you start to dig into the details is Statoil has much lower energy consumption. And they also have much lower fossil fuel consumption because they're using less carbon capture and storage. They're very low on carbon capture and storage, actually. Because they have lower energy consumption, they don't need as much bioenergy and so on and so forth. Hmm. So in this situation, Statoil is much more, in a sense, well, don't know how you want to call it, but let's say aggressive in terms of energy conservation and much more conservative in carbon capture and storage, leading to less fossil fuel use overall than the sort of median, if you like, the bulk of the IPCC scenarios. How interesting. And this is just sort of coming back to the point that the scenarios assessed by the IPCC, not necessarily very strong on energy demand, not systematically doing some scenarios that we may think are more realistic. There's not many scenarios that really look in the Paris context. So the Paris Agreement has this idea of raising ambition. So you'll do a little bit and then when you see how that works, then you do a little bit more and a little bit more and you keep screwing down the screw in a sense right on your way to two degrees which is more the way that you think about it in a way yeah so these scenarios assessed by the ipcc have only looked at a subset of the scenario space and i think that's quite important to recognize it's not all the possible ways to get to two degrees it's a subset of the ways to get to two degrees exactly and so we should think out broader other ways that we can get to two degrees that they may not have assessed and there may be many opportunities to get to two degrees which are much less painful than what they suggest in the scenarios. Exactly. And, you know, to put an even finer point on that, maybe, because these models assess a subset of scenarios and come up with, you know, a two degree forecast does not mean that two degrees is inevitable, that there is no solution space other than the well-understood ones or ones that include CCS that does not get you to two degrees. That would be false. 
Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's correct. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The most recent capacity plan from American Electric Power, or AEP, may be the greatest indication yet that the energy transition on the grid has become unstoppable. The utility, which at one time was the largest coal-burning utility in the Western Hemisphere, and which still generates 47% of its power from coal, plans no capacity additions from coal in the future. In fact, its latest capacity plan expects to build 3 gigawatts of solar and 5 gigawatts of wind, in addition to a very modest 1.5 gigawatts of natural gas between 2018 and 2030. And moreover, the utility is actually pushing back on the new coal subsidies proposed by Secretary of Energy Rick Perry to fulfill Trump's pledge to bring back the coal industry. AEP Executive Vice President Charles Patton told GTM that reliability and other services should be properly determined and valued by the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, as they always have been, rather than imposed as what he called a blanket grant to a few. And I could hardly agree more. See the link to Julia Piper's story in the show notes. Item 2. And speaking of the DOE Noper, writing in Forbes, Jeff McMahon relates how Allison Silverstein, the author of the so-called grid reliability study that the DOE commissioned to lay the foundation. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. <laughs>